Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. Our guest this week is Michael Burnham, a lifelong theater professional, director, actor, writer, producer, who hails from the theater-friendly city of Cincinnati, Ohio, where he is now retired from teaching university theater. He's won the 2003 Award for Continuing Excellence from the League of Cincinnati Theaters and is an honored member of the Cincinnati Entertainment Awards Hall of Fame. He recently blew away audiences at the inaugural Ithaca Fringe Festival with his show Warriors and Other Victims, and this show was the first ever recipient of the Andrew M. Dixon Award. We started talking with Michael about his claim that he's been a participant of every single Cincinnati Fringe Festival, even once when he was not in the country. Okay, so I'm looking at your, your facts, your curriculum vitae here, and while it's not actually surprising, it is kind of impressive that you've been a part of every Cincinnati Fringe Um and it says here, including a couple that happened decades ago, disguised as experimental and alternative. My two questions about this are, why were they classified as experimental and alternative? And have you really been a part of every Cincinnati Fringe? And how many is that? Um, that's 15 of them. I think it's about to be 16. And and yes, except for one in in which I was not embodied. I was a t-shirt once. We were in Poland. I was studying in Poland and the fringe came up and I told them I wouldn't be able to be a part of it that year. And um, they put me on the t-shirt as a mad scientist with a beaker of something that was flaming. And, <laughs> um, it was great fun. They were, that was before anybody actually began to use the word fringe. And it was just all the alternative theaters in the city got together and went, we should have a little festival. And so they put on a couple of them. We all did a couple of them. And, uh, and I, I had to do with them. So that was, that was that. And then later on, there was Edinburgh, you know, and suddenly right. fringe was a giant word. So that was it. So what, what was your position? What were you doing at the time that this started? How did you get to be a part oh, of this? Yeah, what happened when they began was, well, my theater history is a little bit odd. I mean, there was a tiny, tiny bit of theater in high school, and then there was a tiny bit of theater in college, and I kept flunking out, so I didn't get to do that very much. It was the 60s when everybody flunked out, you know. At a certain at a certain point, I went AWOL from the Army and happened to wind up in New York and happened to need some counseling quickly um, for reasons that are in the piece I did in Ithaca. And, and I went to Judson Memorial Church, because I had read in Time Magazine while I was in the Army that they had this great alternative theater program. So I went to Judson and um, met the minister and the associate minister. And it turned out the minister had been a, a chaplain, some kind of a military chaplain, and, they, uh, and, and I got involved in theater there and stayed in New York for a while until my teeth started to rot for reasons you don't need to know. And I came back to Ohio and uh, went to work in a children's hospital and then took up both acting in um, small theaters around the city and also being the theater critic for this um, this little magazine called, we're called the Queen City in Ohio. Yeah. It used to be the Queen City of the West. I mean, now, I've, I I've heard just, of people getting religion through theater, but not the other way around. <laughs> Well, that happened early on. When I was when I was a kid, I, mean, I don't religion was just something that that happened. 
And and at a certain point on the way through uh, working with church youth groups, I began to discover theater, and that was in the days of. Uh, and this is me being in them, not me, not me teaching them. Right. Um, I be- I began to discover that you could actually write worship services that included things like Shakespeare or the one I got in the most trouble for as a kid was um, I, I, I opened a worship service with that line from Edward Albee, um, Jesus H. Christ, what a dump. What was the reaction of to that, Michael? Um, well, the, the, the youth group advisor accepted it as being okay because we were on a retreat somewhere and no one really had to know. But I was called in later, and it was explained to me in, in quite civil terms, but just that if I wanted to keep doing this, I should be a little more selective <laughs> in, in, in the pieces that I chose. Yeah. And I went on at some length. I'm not a high school kid, right? I went on at some length about why why Edward Albee made sense, and they just sort of rolled their eyes and let me go. So that that was it. And then when I first went to college, I went to college um, thinking that I might become a minister of some kind. Then I happened to go to a Quaker college, and the college, the war happened. And suddenly I began to think, well, my whole concept of God doesn't make any sense. So I quickly went from Christian to pantheist to atheist. What year was this? Oh, I graduated from high school in 65, so that must have been 66 and 67. Okay. And then um, the first time I flunked out would have been the, uh, the spring of 66. So I would have, and then I, I would have gone into the service about The first the time you flunked 66. out. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm one of those guys, George, with it. I had tenure for a long time at the University of Cincinnati, but I, my terminal degree is high school. Okay. So I um, I never quite made it out. But when but what happened going to um, when I got out of the army, the logical place to look for people who were as crazy as me, I thought was a, was a church with a theater in it. So that's where I went, and then and then it just things moved on from there. But yeah, I have a friend who says he wants to go around the country turning theaters back into barns, and and yeah, I pretty much agree with him. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and I felt the same way about the, about the church. So, and I've never exactly left it. I mean, everybody knows that I'm an atheist. Everybody here, at least in our town, knows that I'm an atheist. But when they needed somebody to direct Corpus Christi, um, the, 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 you know that play, the play about the kid who he hits puberty and he discovers two things about himself. One is that he's right. gay, and the, and the other one is that he's the second coming of Jesus. Right. And it will, well, when they needed somebody to direct it here, they asked me if I would direct it. And it happened to be in the basement of a church, and I thought that was the best place to do it. So that interplay between me and religion has never stopped. But uh, it's it's not an organization that I choose to belong to or believe in. And, right. I mean, Corpus yeah. Christi is, is a play that uh, inspires great debate. And, it certainly does. And emotional reactions to it. I mean, what was your take on the play? I mean, how did you how did you work this? How did you direct it, particularly being, quote, an atheist? Um, and what was the reaction once it actually happened? What did people say about it? Yeah, here's, here's, what, um, here's what happened. So, 
So they asked me because they thought I would be able to handle the pressure of uh, of everything that would come with it, including the bomb threats and the big rallies outside the church and all. Right. And, and it was done that, that at that time. It was at the No Theater, which you know. I know um, the No Theater the very no, well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and and so in the, at that time, the No was functioning out of the basement of a church, and I thought to myself, what better place to do this story? Because what it really is, one of the things that that makes me tick is finding out what's what voices are not privileged somewhere. Okay. And when we did Midsummer Night's Dream, I took a look at the workers and decided that they would probably beat the living hell out of the royals if they performed for them and the royals behaved the way the royals do. So I put that in the play. I found a textual place to put it in. And it's the same thing with Corpus Christi. It's who gets to tell this story. And, okay. and and who gets to be part of the story? And in Cincinnati, there's a uh, there probably is in almost every city, but in Cincinnati, there's a church that's predominantly gay and lesbian, and and I've always been kind of fascinated by that. So so it was a chance to say who gets to be in the story, who gets included, and and one of the reasons I had left the church in the first place is because it wasn't inclusive. So we went through a series of negotiations with the church that housed the theater, and they decided we could put it on. And um, and we did, and we got you know, literally tens of thousands of, um, of angry postcards, and we got boycott messages, and people were threatening to boycott the city, and they, they claimed there would be... We had, yeah, well, we got some death threats. Um, they weren't particularly gruesome, but we all got one or two. I got four or five, and because I was the director, I guess, and an atheist too, God forbid. So, so then, um, and there were some bomb threats, and the dog came through a couple of nights and didn't find anything, and we were okay. And, How many performances then, did you have? Um, God, we ran like four weeks, maybe. Wow. So we ran, we ran in the classic no fashion, which is in those days was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We ran, and and we only did Sunday evenings. We didn't do a matinee because we didn't okay. think we wanted the church to be able to empty itself before right. we showed up with the theater. But we but we ran, and it sold out uh, consistently. And there was consistently a group of protesters around, and there were religious services that were held outside the church. Con- condemning us and, and trying to rescue the church. And we all had to meet. It was great. There was a bar that was right up the street that, that from the church that was run by a, a wonderful old gay barkeep. And, and he just invited us to come there. So we would go there uh, before the show, and we would all meet in the upstairs of the bar and get ready. And then in a group, like a parade, with him leading us, bless his heart, he, mm. was, he was he was big. He was your size. Uh, this is a this is a man of some of some power, right? He would lead us as if he were a drum major down the hill from from the bar through this crowd, and there was a cordon. There was, there was a lovely cordon of gays and lesbians and transgender people, and and some in drag, uh, who would sort of make a little safe way for us to walk through the protesters and get into the church and wow. so we did the show we only got interrupted once and it happened the very first night and uh, i had cast i did a lot of cross that was the other thing that made it i guess slightly different was i did cross-gender casting so i, I had both men and women in it which was not usual at the time and i also cast some straight people in it 
Um, how was uh, how was the figure of Christ cast? Christ was cast. Christ was just this normal, everyday looking guy. Um, guy named Rob Jansen is still acting around the country, who uh, who just looked like the guy down the street. And sort of had, I wouldn't say a beatific smile, but he had one of those smiles where if you looked at him, you would think to yourself, well, I don't really want to cross this guy, but I think he's okay. <laughs> so, so we cast him as that, because we figured, you know, he, he does all those nice things, and he also is capable of driving the money changers out of the, temp, out of the temple. So we, we put that in there. And then we cast, um, the Virgin Mary was the trouble one. That's the one that set people up a little bit. As we cast um, this wonderful man, Jim Stump, who actually was also our Bible expert on the piece. We had two of them. It turns out we had Jim Stump, who knows the Bible backwards and forwards as a gay man. And we had um, this great guy, Derek Hake, who, uh, who was at the time a Sunday school teacher and, uh, and took a huge risk to be in this play. Sure, many did, yeah. Yeah, well, Jim, Jim's, Jim is, um, how do you describe him? Jim is soft and round and um, masculine, but also masculine with a beard, actually, but but also kind of dumpy looking. I hate to say that on the radio about Jim, but he has the ability to be dumpy when you need him to look dumpy. And we cast him as the Virgin Mary. And uh, and people That's got a little bit nervous about that. That, that kind of goes uh, against the usual representation. Well, it yeah. did, except that Jim's character was just so kind and giving and hopeful that it, was, it made it okay. So, so people had a little trouble with that, and the first night some guys stood up. And, uh, well, there was a, there's a place where, where Mary dances with one of the other apostles. I forget which one, but that apostle was played by, by a young woman who is probably, you've seen me, I'm little, and she's probably a head shorter than me. And about the time when um, she reached around behind Jim Stump while they were dancing and grabbed him with both hands on his ass, she, uh, the, the two people stood up and just sort of allowed us to how they couldn't stay. I can and, say how that but, might upset a few people. I mean, the very concept yeah. of this play in itself is geared to be uh, highly controversial. Well, and that was the thing we went up against and really got excited about was that it, and actually, that moment was a moment that I, where I have to admit I hadn't foreseen that, that people would freak so badly because it was far enough into the play that I thought everything would be okay. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that I, I wanted, how do we describe it? I wanted people to be able to watch it, and I didn't ever want to do anything in it that was shock just for shock value. Right. So it's logical in high school when you're dancing, eventually your hands slip down your girlfriend's back. So that became just a logical piece of business. I never did that. <laughs> well, then you're a much kinder boy in high school than I was. Uh, I guess because I never but, got a chance to dance with a girl. I was like such a dweeb and a geek, they wouldn't come near me. One of the, oh. one of the, <laughs> one of the things that, that struck, struck me was, um, since we're talking about this, you know, I did uh, the Cincy Fringe in 08. Uh, we, mm -hmm. brought, yeah, we brought our play. And my little group of ragtags, um, geniuses and, and wonderful people all, were outside of Cincinnati. And we noticed that driving through Ohio, we would encounter billboards with Bible verses on them, billboards with uh, the Ten Commandments. And as we discussed, 
you and I a couple of weeks ago, there was that huge figure of Jesus in the baptismal pool, which you see as you drive by on the highway, which has since been struck by lightning and burned to the ground. Um, So you've got a very, very strong religious influence out there. I'm going to say, you know, evangelical, fundamental. It takes root and it's nothing to mess with. So putting this play on was... I would say, you know, took guts at the very least. What were you, know, what were you expecting? The, um, well, that was the nose guts to put it on, bless their hearts. Mm. And, and what, we, what we were expecting was that, that in, in some way, I mean, we knew what would happen from the giant outside surround, but in some way we had this kind of faith that in Cincinnati there are people who are concerned that um, that everybody gets to play. It's a very conservative city, but one of the old conservative values is I don't get in your face. You do what you do, and you and I do what I do, and we're all okay. And so we thought that would probably carry. Um, we did get called in the newspaper by the bishop at the time. We got called potty mouthed, which potty mouth. Kind, mm. of, yeah. kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. And um, we happened to be overshadowed in the paper. There's a great. Cincinnati Inquirer page that has at the top of it, it has the Dixie Chicks in trouble for for saying what they said sure, about yeah, I remember that. And to the Americans. And on the bottom of the page is us. And um, and oddly, because of the nature of the story, we were compared favorably to the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> one is one is un-American, and the other is well, that's my kid. Yeah. So what's happening now is that, at least in Cincinnati, people have been starting to come out. And, you know, every family knew somebody or was connected to somebody. And you have to treat it with a little bit more openness. And that was what we were counting on and what we were planning for. And, mm-hmm. and it turned out that the people who came, many of them, were um, we recognized them as priests and nuns of our acquaintance who right. came in civilian clothes so that they wouldn't get caught or be in trouble. But they believe in an inclusive Christ and an inclusive religion. So they, they wanted to be there to see how it would happen. And the other part that made it seem to work is the farther you get into the story, if, if you work it right, I guess, and we did, the more you begin to see the interplay between what happens to Jesus and what happens to Joshua, the kid in the play, that the, and the crucifixion becomes this kind of complex thing. And um, there was this moment, the guy Derek Hake, who was the Sunday school teacher who was in it, I remember in his audition, me saying, and I think I want to put some music in it, but I don't know what it is. Do you know it, any church songs? Any Sunday school teacher? And he, a cappella, sang this incredibly beautiful song that was Jesus' calling, Come home, come home. And um, when we put Rob on the cross, and we we were awful, we lit him with Christmas tree lights and, and blinking Christmas tree lights. We just made <laughs> all the god awful Christmas stuff, and we stood Derek behind the audience, and we had him sing that song a cappella, and people wept. So it sort of had. Yeah. We were able to get the story to the place where emotionally we could connect to the story that they knew, and it's it it. That's a terrible thing to say, but the guys at the no say it, so I'll say it. It put the no on the map, not by being 
outrageous, which it was, but by being concerned and uh, right. and, and right. emotionally connected. And they gave us that year. We won the, there's a big award in Chile called the Post Corbett Award, and right. we got yeah. the art, we got the Art Event of the Year for um, for putting on that play and the way in which we handled it, which was nice, which was pretty lovely. Nice. Yeah. I, want, I want to switch so, gears for a little bit here, and since we're talking about the no, by the way, for my for our listeners, that's K N O W, a um, unbelievably fantastic and well respected theater in the over the Rhine section of Cincinnati, which itself uh, the no serves as the hub and the host of the Cincinnati Fringe, which, as Michael just said, is sixteen or seventeen years old at this particular point, and yearly hosts, oh, I don't know, 35, 40 acts that come in for how many days, you think, Michael? Oh, it's two weeks. It's, two weeks. It's, it's 12, 12 to 14 solid days of, okay. uh, of, of great fringe theater. Yeah. And you've performed in every one except one where you served as a T-shirt. So what were your performances? What, what kind of work did you do? Has it all been... Let me backtrack a little bit. You just finished the Ithaca Fringe. Right. And you came in with your show, Warriors and Other Victims, and the rest of the title I didn't bother to memorize because it would take half an hour to say it. Um, it would take the rest of the interview, yeah. Yeah, pretty it much. Would. But it was it was a mind-blowing, beautifully written, uh, very emotional piece, uh, possibly one of the best anti-war pieces I've, I've ever witnessed in, in my career here. And you walked away with the Andrew M. Dixon Award, which is given to the show that best exemplifies living life to the fullest, to the spirit of life. Um, so were your previous – I want to talk about that show in a second, but going okay. back to your previous shows at you know, Cincy Fringe and elsewhere, um, were your other Fringe shows of, of a similar nature? No, not at all. Well, one was. I guess, of a, in terms of me being a solo performer within it. Um, Barbara made a piece, Barbara Wolf, the, the woman that I've lived with for the last 45 or 46 years, we've lost count. Uh, she's a documentarist, and she made a documentary about uh, the possible privatization of the water in Cincinnati, which was, looked like it might be going to happen. Right. And I put together a solo piece to interrupt the documentary so it would play for a while, and then I would interrupt it for a while, and then it would play for a while. But that's as close. Other pieces have been plays that other people have written, or one time, uh, the, in the first fringe, there was this great poet who just, just died this year, um, a woman named Airely Strange, who lived in Cincinnati for a long time. And she lived on Main Street before it was gentrified. And, and she um, wrote poems about the people that she saw. And so she made a piece called Dr. Payne on Main. And a writing center called Ink Tank asked me if I would stage it. So I did uh, in the first fringe. And, uh, and that, that worked out just fine. And then for the next fringe, Ink Tank called up and went, yeah, buses. And I went, yeah, I do. And they went, well, good, because we're collecting bus stories. Can we turn them into a piece and do it on a bus? So for that fringe, we um, we got two people to portray um, bus drivers and one woman to portray this woman whose um, kid had gotten off a bus on the way home from school and crossed in front of the bus and been hit by a car and killed. And that woman had written the story of, of the death of her kid. Uh, and, and we 
literally put people on a bus. So we had to borrow the bus from Northern Kentucky because the Cincinnati bus company chickened out uh. on the day of the performance. It turned out the driver who was going to drive us was moonlighted at the bus company in Northern Kentucky. And so he called them up and talked to them into giving them a bus. So every night the bus would pull up to this bar. That was and lucky. And we would put people on it. Yeah, it was really lucky. But that's the kind of luck you have sometimes with a fringe. Because mm-hmm. people get excited about the project that you're doing. In, 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 in your... A, for, yeah, go ahead. You know, um, what is a fringe to you? Can, can you explain to our audience... Because I know from talking about the Ithaca Fringe and talking about other fringes, people look at me with this quizzical look and they say, what is this thing you call fringe? Can you explain um, in your own words? What is it? So for me, fringe is the place where you get to try to speak in the languages that often mainstream theater can't afford to let you speak in. So that when... One of the things I did when I first came back to Cincinnati after I'd been a theater critic and an actor for a while, I became the dramaturg of the Playhouse in the Park, which is the big, fancy theater in the city. And um, what happened is we suddenly had 17,000 subscribers, which means you have to fill all those seats and you have to be a little bit picky about what shows you can put in. So the range of things, the range of voices that can speak gets narrowed. And for me, fringe is a way of saying, here's a small place where you can go in the same way that, um, that when we came to Ithaca, you wound up put it, putting us in Darcy's place. Say the name of it. What was that? that great place where the kids go to learn film? What's that called? That would be Acting Out New York. It's in Center Ithaca on the mezzanine. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful place. And yeah, yeah, it's a brilliant place. And the kids who go there, I had the best time watching them learning and, and talking to their parents while we were waiting to release. But what that is, is a tiny little space where I can show up with a brand new piece that I've just finished, and I can try to speak the message of what happens to people who have PTSD and, and what happens to their families in a, in a theatrical way that's not mainstream. And the same thing happens throughout the fringe in a variety of venues uh, and in a variety of different styles. I mean, there's lots of comedy, but it's not the comedy you would see at a comedy club. It's somebody attempting to say something that's a kind of twisted with their comedy. It um, can be people who use giant life-size puppets or wear masks and do mask work. It can be, we have, we have parents and in ours and in yours, you had that kind of amazing Buto theater of Ithaca that just... So there, there are all different ways of, of playing it. It's also a place where you can do smaller pieces. If you think about the, the piece, um, the Four Easy Pieces show that was in Ithaca, that's pretty standard for us in Cincinnati to have people come and say, I got this piece that's only 25 minutes long, and I need a place to do it so we can see what it is. And then it happens. So it's voices that wouldn't be spoken otherwise and that also have something to connect to the audience or an interplay with the audience that you might not get otherwise. Okay. Some shows require proscenium, yeah. but a lot like mine, first show we, the first show we did, the, the Dr. Payne on Main in the very first Fringe, I went bananas because they built me a little proscenium stage in a big open room where I had decided all the characters would appear in this row of windows that went down the side of the room, and now they couldn't. 
and the producer Jeff Jeff and I had to go out and uh, and buy flashlights so we could light the people we brought into the audience, and they know better than that now. But it's a place where you can play <laughs> with all the re- you can play with all the relationships that are that are part of theater, and it, and it's a chance also for an audience. I don't know if this happens to you. It happens to me because I'm addicted to cop shows on TV. But eventually, you're watching the same permutation of cop show over and over again. Oh, yes, yeah. It just drills into you, and you stop being quite so sensitive to what's actually going on in the world. And and you, you need to retrain your sensibilities to hear things in slightly different ways. I guarantee you, if you go to watch it at Kabuto, and... Um, you're not going to be able to think the same when you walk out because even their sense of time is different than anybody else. Right. And well, a, a good production, a good show should alter you and in, in a positive way, not a negative way, but it should alter you to some small degree, change something in your life where you can walk Absolutely. out of there. Yes. With a new, you know, an, another new piece of information, another new way of looking at things. And yeah, um, talking about Ithaca Bhutto, I saw that show several times and I always came out with something that stuck in my brain that made me think about either the way I move or the way I think about things. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, one of the nicest things anybody said about our show while we were there was we were staying with these two lovely, lovely people, Andres and, and Diana. And at a certain point, I said, So, should we talk about it? And Diana went, I would rather wait a couple of days. I'm tired of people coming out of the theater and going, well, that was really good, and he was great, and she was okay, and he was a little sloppy. We've all been trained into that kind yeah. of... we become instant critics, thinking. yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and what she was saying was, I need to see what has changed in me. I need to see what's different. I need to see what questions I actually have. And, and that's one of the ways I judge what good theater is, is yeah. if you get open in that way. Then, then it's functioning, and then things begin to move for both the performers and the uh, and 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 the audience. Right. There's one other thing about about fringe that's fascinating, and I don't know if you, if you've ever gotten to play with this, but I did in Ithaca, and it was great fun. That that reviews get posted instantly online, and you can go look at them if you want to. So my show actually altered a little bit as a result of, of what critics said. And then I took into account certain things that they said. And as thought, I recall, well, yeah, you reacted said? in your show to one of the reviewers, I mean, in a positive way, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she was right. She was absolutely right. So, yeah, there was this place in the show where I've put what I think, in spite of the fact that it was told to me by a woman, is this kind of un... un it's just no excuse for this joke to exist. It's a rape joke. Uh, it's politically uh, incorrect to the max, yes. I would say it's both politically incorrect and insensitive in spite of the fact that lots of boys, me included, and some women, Barbara included, laugh at it. We, When you're laughing, you know it's not right. And, uh, and, and she called me out on using it. And so I just stopped the show every night after that and said, if you happen to run into this critic, please tell her she's right. There is no excuse for this joke except that I have to have something this gross in this spot. Right. And I haven't found anything else that works that well yet. So um, if you laughed at the joke, bless your heart for laughing. And if you were offended, you were right. And well, then went on. So so in a fringe, you can do that. You can have that relationship. Your show, Warriors and Other Victims, features 32 words. 
that you write, in this case, on a big old chalk wall um, for the audience to see, and you discuss each word to varying degrees. How did you choose these particular words? And the one that struck me the most, I think, and I'm not really sure why, was the word kid. And is it possible for you to give us a little bit of that performance here on the radio? Just do, do a little bit from that from that moment. Um, so, so the the deal is that um, one of the initial. I just should just tell you all right straight up front. One of the initial impulses to make this show. I was originally going to make a show about what happens to women in the face of war, and in the course of preparing it, it suddenly dawned on me that my mother was was one of those people, and then I began discovering that people are starting to find. How do I describe it? To start, secondary PTSD is not what it's called by psychologists because apparently you can only have PTSD, but traditionally secondary PTSD is what you get from somebody who already has it. So you become traumatized by them. And, um, and part, of, part of my life w- was that. And part of kids now, their lives is that. I've watched it happen to other people's kids. And it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. So it, we got to a certain place in the piece where I've um, I've talked about my mother and I've talked about her funeral and I've talked about discovering the last night that she was alive that she had worked in an amputation ward and uh, at a certain point I just start walking toward the back of the theater and I go word twenty eight kid you don't have to see me for the and then it just goes on and this is the, this is the text you you don't have to see me for this one you really don't. You just have to hear me for this one. Pretty much first person, pretty much in present tense. And all the way through the piece, I've been using, um, I've been saying you instead of I all the way through when I've been telling the story. So this one, pretty much first person, pretty much in present tense. See, basically the way I figure, my mom was like a person trapped inside a car wreck and my dad was the guy who got thrown free and was some days sitting on the curb in shock and other days was running back to try to pull her out. And she is just sitting there waiting for the jaws of life. And me, I'm just a nosy neighbor who stopped by the block. And even on my best days, I cannot tell you who it was who was driving. And I don't mind telling the story. Not at all. I don't. I'm okay. It's just that there's this fear I have, you know, that I'm going to be doing this piece somewhere and some vet or other is going to come up to me and he is going to say... Dude, you don't know what the hell you're talking about because you weren't there, dude. You walked away, dude. So who the hell do you think you are? Except that's that's not the scary part. The scary part is the part where I have to look that dead in the eye and I have to tell the truth. The scary part's the part where I have to look them in the eye and say out loud, Ah, come on, sweetie, don't you get it? I might be okay, but I am not all right. And that's the line that always sticks with me, too. I'm okay, but I'm not all right. I mean, it's the, to me, there's volumes in that. It's a a lovely line, and it's, uh, it's the truth for knowing, George, where that line came from. That line came... It, it, in, a, in a therapy session where uh, 
therapist looked at me when I came through the door and she said to me, so how are you today? And I went, well, I'm okay, but not all right. Mm. She just looked, she looked at me and she went, well, we all know that. That's why you're here. <laughs> so, so that's it. And then yeah. the other piece that, that fits from that is that when you look at the kids of these vets, me included, when you look at them, they're not all right. They're kids half yeah. the time. And then the other half of the time, they're not. So that section ends with, so what you got to understand is when you look in my eyes, I'm 80, 67 years old, but you're looking at your kid. And that's, so that was the whole impetus for the piece. Right. As usually happens, I didn't know that until the piece was pretty much written. Such is what happens to we writers who put our work up and then we stand there and we look at it and we go, oh my gosh, is that really what I said? Yeah, people. Exactly. A lot of non-writers don't understand that they expect everything to be nice and neat and out there and in the open. And we sit there and go, "I don't." Did I do that? Right. Yeah. And in fact, and in fact, I have to say that's one more thing I love about fringes is that um, it's becoming now so that if you're directing in a mainstream theater, they want it to be clear, and they want yes. So that people can only make one choice. I hate to say this, but when I was a boy, the, the idea for casting actors was you looked at actors, and if you thought this actor could be doing one of a couple of things at any given moment, that's the person that you cast. Now right. they want you to cast the person who's only doing one thing. And so ambiguity begins to disappear, and, and that kind of strangeness that goes... That's the mystery of life, for my money. I mean, that's getting lost. And in the fringe, you can bring those little messy edges. Yeah. And you can bring, whether you've been funny, I mean, the show that, that your guys did in, in Cincinnati, that show's totally off the wall. And, and it bent audiences to the point that the night that I showed up, there was standing room only, and we didn't care. We stood in the back of the house and we watched it go. That's largely because the way it was directed was clear enough that we never got lost, but we could never put our fingers on exactly what it was that was being said. Yeah. And we had to carry it with us. And Fringe does that. That's what you go for, I think, is that it's the thing that, it's the, thing that, that the Andrew M. Dixon Award is for. It's the fullness of life, yeah. you know? That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the deal to me. Somebody asked me once what, what kind of shows you see in a Fringe, and without even thinking about it, I said, unsafe ones. And then yeah. I had to spend 23 minutes explaining that what unsafe meant. And at the end, I still didn't quite get to it. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Okay. The listening exchange. Okay. Uh, looking yeah. up, I'm, 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 I was reading about this after-school cultural liter- uh, literacy program for high school students. You want to tell us something about this? Yeah, that's what I'm doing now that I've retired from teaching college students. Right? So I, I turned around and, and went back to high school. I figured I got a degree from high school. Maybe I know something about it, you know? Maybe, and, yeah. uh, But, but the, the deal is that, that I keep looking at these kids today, and they are, they are so smart until we're finished with them. And then they're sort of trying to figure out what box do I go in. And I thought, why not let them pick issues that they think are really important? 
and let them research them. And by research, I mean historical research. I mean doing oral histories with people. I also mean looking through literature so to find poems, to find the chunks of Shakespeare that fit, to find what, what the Greeks thought about it, and then construct that into some kind of a performance piece. I mean, and what I do is just train them in the research skills and also in the construction process, and I give them some, some beauty skills along the way. And then we do them in tiny rooms, not a lot, not unlike Dicey's room, you know, but where an audience can sit around and um, and they perform close to the audience these pieces. And then there's this great group in town called the, um, the it's IJPC. It's a Peace and Justice Center, and 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 they're teaching these kids how to facilitate small group dialogues. So when the piece is over, the piece lasts half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, then the um, the kids sit down at a, in a small group with five or six other people who, who were in the audience. Each kid got five or six, and they they facilitate a dialogue on the issue with those people. And then at the end, they stand up and they say what they thought coming in and how their own image, how their own thoughts about the issue have morphed a little bit as a result of listening to these people in these small groups. And it's just a way of hooking kids back into the society. We keep trying to push them out, you know, and, uh, and, and that's what I'm up to. So I figured if you, when you retire, it's like, and, and thank goodness I was a professor, so I have a pension. We, we, we can stay alive. Why that's not? It's a rare thing these days. Yeah, it is rare. Well, tenure really and professorship rare. anyway, but that's a whole other show. <laughs> yes, it is a whole other show. You're right. But, but why not? When you get out, it's like someone hands you a license to go do something decent for a while. You know? Yeah. So I figured, I figured make the combination of making solo shows and, and working with high school kids to reconnect them to the world they live in. I mean, my bottom line belief is that, that you know, we're handing off a kind of sick world to these kids. They're capable of fixing it if they start now. So why not give them the chance? And this at least is a way of training their brains and their hearts. Right. Well, so well I think the, open. one of the critical things is actually convincing them that what they say can be heard and considered because a lot of people don't speak up because they don't think it's worth it. Like nothing they say will matter. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that they teach them to do when they're facilitating and the same thing works on them is so in the, in the small group process, they get to force grown-ups to paraphrase what the previous audience member said. So your ticket to be able to talk in this small group is whoever said something, you have to paraphrase what they said before you can say your point. And the first time one of those goes off really well, the kid turns to the person who gets paraphrased and says, feels good to be heard, doesn't it? And the person always goes, oh, yes, that's so amazing. People don't listen anymore. Yeah. So the kids are picking up on that. And they're also realizing by watching the conversations happen that uh, that they're being heard. Any of these kids and get hooked on theater? Um, yeah, well, part of it is to do that, yeah. The scary part for me is that the real theater kids, they don't necessarily want to play this game because it's not going to make them a star. You know, everybody wants to be a star now. Oh, sure, of but course, the, yeah. Yeah, but the other kids who want to grow up to be you and me and maybe have lives in the theater or maybe want to be audience love being part of this. So it hooks them on going. I mean, Barbara's theory about, uh, about what's happening to the world now is 
in our town, I don't know. I don't know how it is in Ithaca. I don't think you have quite this yet because you're surrounded by conservatories. But but where we are, we have a magnet high school where all the performing arts kids go. Which means that in any given high school, the three kids who used to get the other kids excited about being in the play are not there anymore. Mm. They're in the fancy high school. Right. Fancy yeah, that's that's a country. serious drawback for the regular schools. Yeah, not only is it a serious drop off, it's a, for them, it's a serious drop off for the art form. Yeah. Because what you're losing when kids don't play is you're losing the audience. Exactly. So we're yeah. training people to not be interested and stay away. And this is part of this is, is yeah, it's a backhanded way for me to grow a committed audience. Uh, well, yeah. Michael Burnham, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And. Uh, Warriors was an outstanding production and congratulations on winning the Andrew M. Dixon Award and we look forward to seeing much more of your work in the future thank you and I look forward to living up to that award he must have been somebody that man yeah he, he was an been. amazing person thanks yeah. Michael we'll be talking alright take care George